you have your copy of God's Word, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, that you would turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we are, of course, going to be continuing our studies in the Sermon on the Mount tonight. And I would ask that if uh, we're, we're going to specifically be looking at verses 31 and 32. And I would ask that if you have, uh, if you're able and you have your copy of the Scriptures, that you would stand for the reading of the Word of God. Matthew 5, verse 31, the words of our Savior. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If you join me in a word of prayer. Father God, Father, humbly we come to you tonight. Father, we pray that we would be assisted by the Holy Spirit as we seek to worship you. Father, we ask sincerely that you would remove worldly thoughts, worldly ambitions, worldly opinions from our minds as we set our hearts to look deeply into the truth of your word. Father God, by your grace and the power of your spirit, illuminate this truth to us. Father, that we may be conformed to the image of your Son, as is your predestined plan for your saints, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Lord, in order to accomplish this, we must die to ourselves. We must be dead, and we must be raised again with Christ. And this is possible through your power, for nothing is impossible with you, dear Lord. We ask this in the name of your beloved Son. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, as we return to our studies in the Sermon on the Mount, we notice that Jesus immediately transitions from the topics of adultery and lust onto the topic of divorce. Now, if I had to make a confession, uh, this is not a, a topic that I was just enthused and excited and and just couldn't wait to to address, Uh, I realized that with with many of the things that we've been discussing, really since the beginning of this sermon series, the things that we've been discussing have been hopefully very personal, uh, very very gripping, uh, very convicting. Uh, I think that Really, that, that is one of Jesus' intentions in the Sermon on the Mount is, is to expose us, uh, to expose our need of a Savior. And so I was talking with, with my 13-year-old sister, who is, um, well, we're not going to get into that, but anyways, I, I, uh, I, I told her about what it is that I was going to be addressing tonight, that I was going to be, because we're not really just going to be talking about divorce so much, but when you look at the larger teaching of the Scripture, really. Uh, so if I'm just, I'm going to give you a little bit of, hi- of hints of what we're going to look at later. Oftentimes people say, well, in, in the first century, Jesus had a really conservative view of divorce. And, and there's a sense in which that's true, but, but when you begin to study uh, these things, it's not just that Jesus had such a conservative 
view of divorce, it's that he had such a high view of marriage. And as I began to really study these things and, and, and to put this all together, to prepare to present it, I, I thought that I was just going to be sort of like begrudging my way through this, but then I was just awestruck with, with the beautiful reality that, that, that is painted for us in the Bible as far as what, what marriage really is. And, and you say, well, Logan, you're not married. Well, neither was Jesus, so that point's dismissed. But at any rate, so my sister says to me, well, why, why are you talking about marriage why, why are you, and, and divorce and these different things? And, I, and what I told her was, well, we have been working our way uh, expositionally, verse by verse, through the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that that means is, well, we can't skip anything right? Uh, we, we have to, you know, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, and he says, well, whatever was written in the former times was written for us. And I'm going to be butchering this, this quote, but uh, John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, when he gets, and, and, and we're not going to be getting into this tonight, but when he begins to open up his section on uh, the doctrine of predestination, which is obviously very controversial. One of the things that he says is basically, well, anything that the Holy Spirit has inspired in the Word is for the church. We need to listen to this, right? So if we were working through the book of Romans, I wouldn't just skip over certain parts of chapters three and five and, and eight and nine that, that well, you know, that's, let's just not talk about it. No, we, we, we have to be humble enough to allow God to speak to us even with things that we may find uncomfortable. And so, as, as, I, as I always say, it, it, is, it might be the tendency of some to like to beat around the bush or use euphemisms and things like that. I, I, that's not how I'm wired. That's not my personality. I tend to speak very frankly, very matter-of-factly, very logically, and, and, and I hope and pray that that just makes things more understandable uh, as you would listen. And so, as I said, we are not just going to be explicitly talking and dealing with divorce alone, but we need to look positively at, at what marriage is and, and why marriage is such a, a blessing and why Scripture paints it in such wonderful light, and that will then lead us into why it is such a terrible thing to divorce that union. And so once again, like I said, we find ourselves dealing with a subject that the Bible takes a much different stance on than does the modern world that we live in. And one of the things that Jesus says in, in John chapter 15, for those of you who you may know, I, I've been teaching for over two and a half years, verse by verse, through the Gospel of John. And, and we are in chapter 16 now, and one of the things that Jesus said in chapter 15, which we discussed two weeks ago now, was he said, uh, he, he's telling the disciples that just as the world hated me, so they're also going to hate you. And he says that, that if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. And so if 
the, the thing is, if we look like or resemble the world, whether it is in our thought processes, in our beliefs, in our ethics, if it is in the way that we conduct ourselves, that, that is a bad thing in, in the eyes of Jesus Christ. And, and as you drive around or you look at different churches, you may, may, it seems like some churches are trying to do everything they can to be so much like the world as they possibly can. They think, well, if, if we just be like them, then they'll feel comfortable, and then we, we can bring them in. But Jesus says that's not, that's not how it works. I chose you. I sovereignly chose you out of the world. Now, how many pastors are going to preach on that, that Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life, and it's to make sure that you're hated? But at any rate, that being said, that needs to influence our beliefs about sexuality, marriage, and divorce as well. And, and so all of these factors combined, this make, makes this a topic which most preachers tend to avoid, which we cannot do since we've committed ourselves to studying verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot just ignore some of what Jesus teaches and move on. We must allow his teaching to inform our lives. And because of the fact that this is such a personal and such a contradictory, or not, uh, such a, a, a uh, uh, I'm, I'm blanking out on the word here, such a controversial, thank you, <laughs> thing to talk about, it, it just makes it more necessary for us to talk about, right? It, it, it makes it all the more uh, incumbent upon us to search out the Scriptures that we may know the truth of God's Word. And of course, we, we, we have to ask for the spirit, Spirit's illumination, the Spirit's guidance as we look into these things. And so in verse 31, Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now again, we've talked about what Jesus is doing when he uses a phrase like that. It was also said he will bring up a certain teaching, sometimes even a direct quotation from the law of Moses, and then he will rebuke how it is that the scribes and Pharisees had been mishandling that teaching. Here he does not directly quote the law of Moses, though uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24 does in fact speak of a certificate of divorce. And I'll just read you the passage, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes his wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." Now, and this will become incredibly 
relevant as we go along. What you have here in this passage in Deuteronomy is an example of what's known as case law. A case law or a casuistic law. Now, case laws are laws, and this is important, by the way, in apologetics and dealing with atheists. Just So this is something that you should learn. Case laws are laws which become necessary only when a particular circumstance or case arises. So case laws are not you know, su- suggesting that this overall circumstance of a thing uh, must happen or that this is even a good thing. The case law simply is there to govern what it is that you're supposed to do in the case of a particular event. You see, God recognizes that this that his people of Israel were were a fallen and sinful people. And so there were laws to govern even after things went wrong. For example, there are uh, certain case laws that have to do with a woman who has been raped. And there is a a law in there where the the woman who has been defiled, has her father has the choice to actually legally demand that the rapist marry her. Now, atheists point this out and they say, see, this is how evil the Word of God is. You're demanding that uh, rape victims marry the rapists. But what, what you don't recognize is, well, that's not an overarching command that this is a good thing which must happen. What you have to understand is that was a, a time period when a woman's purity and virginity was, was highly valued. And so for a woman to be defiled, it makes her less suitable or less desirable for other men to marry her. And thus, being that marriage was so important to to have a husband to to provide for you and take care of you, to have children who would watch over you as you uh, uh, grow older, uh, well, it's very dangerous. It's a very bad thing for a woman to be unmarried. So that, that case law in there is actually written so as to protect the woman. It's not a, a overarching moral command that, that man, if, if you want that woman to be your wife and, and she says, no, we'll just, just have your way with her. That's not what it's saying. But you, but you won't understand that if you don't understand the distinction between case laws and, and moral laws. And so, as I've said, the case law just simply governs how you're supposed to handle a particular sinful situation. So in the case of a man marrying his wife, afterwards he finds some indecency in her, her, such that she no longer finds favor in his eyes, he may lawfully divorce or release her from the covenant of marriage by means of acquiring a certificate of divorce. The law then stipulates that if she marries another man, and then subsequently is divorced yet again, she may not go back and remarry her first husband. Now, there are different beliefs and different theories uh, as to why that is. And really, what it comes down to is in verse 4 of the text, it says, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. So some people want to, come up with excuses for that, like, well, well, it had to do with, with the dowry system or it had to do with these other things, but, but all that the Scripture says is that this is an abomination to the Lord. 
and that, that, that should, should be enough, right? And so there are lots of debates, again, surrounding what it means for the man to find, quote, some indecency in her. The word rendered indecency is rather vague in the Hebrew language, uh, irva, and, and it just means nakedness. Once again, there, there are debates as to what that even means. So without getting into all of that, I, I personally believe that this is referring to probably specifically some kind of a physical abnormality such as a perpetual menstruation which would cause the woman to be ritually continually unclean uh, given the ceremonial laws and the Mosaic Covenant. But, but e- even more than that, it, it, it simply came to be understood by the time of Jesus as you find something in her that, that is indecent or that you don't like. Now, the thing that is important to recognize is that the purpose of the certificate of divorce was that it gave permission to the woman, it gave her freedom to marry again, to marry another. As a matter of fact, the, at least at the time of Jesus from the Mishnah, we can actually read what the certificate of divorce said, and it read, Lo, you are permitted to any man. So the purpose of having a certificate of divorce is that the woman can freely marry another and her original husband has no claim, no no control over her after that fact. And so at the time of Moses, really what this was was a way of protecting the woman. So as I, I mentioned, there's a lot of debate amongst modern Bible scholars surrounding the particularities of this passage But what's important for us in our study tonight is that the Jews at the time of Christ themselves were divided over this passage. I, for one, am just thankful that Jesus himself provides teaching on these matters. Uh, But the debate amongst the rabbis is, is really summed up for us quite nicely in what is known as the Mishnah which is essentially a compilation of various uh, rabbinic traditions that were compiled around A.D. 200. And it contains, it's really fascinating, by the way, to look into some of what it contains. But what's great about it for Christians who are studying the New Testament is that it gives us insight into Jewish tradition, thought, teaching uh, around the first century, around the time of Christ. And what's funny to me is that it has six large sections, and the third section or division, is entirely dedicated to the study of women. There's a whole uh, division in there just on the study of women. And so in the third division, under the heading Gitin, from the Hebrew word which relates to a writ of divorce, in section 910 we read this, and uh, and this really sums things up for us. The house of Shammai, Shammai being a rabbi, say a man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. And the house of Hillel say, even if she spoiled his dish, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. And Rabbi Akaba says, even if she found, or if he found someone else prettier than she, since it is said, and it shall be if she, if she finds if he finds no favor in his sight. 
So you see, what essentially you have is you have the more strict rabbis who limited the grounds of divorce to sexual immorality, uh, unchastity, or adultery alone, while other more lenient rabbis would say, well, anything that displeases you, that, that's, that's enough. She spoils a dish. Uh, you found someone else more attractive. She's gone. Get rid of her. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to adopt the position that it is these latter, more lenient, more frivolous rabbis with whom Jesus is disagreeing. Verse 32, Matthew 5, Christ says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so so here we see quite clearly the contrast between Jesus and uh, those rabbis who taught essentially a scheme of what we would call nowadays no-fault divorce. Jesus says everyone who divorces his wife, except on this one condition on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her, causes her to commit adultery. Now that might sound strange to your ear. You know, how is it that if you're divorcing a woman, in cases where it's not sexual immorality, how is it that you are making, that you are, are causing her to commit uh, adultery? The answer is that those are not real divorces. Uh, the point will be explained more deeply as we get into some other scripture dealing with uh, the concept of marriage in general, which is where I really want to ground things. But what Jesus is teaching is that because of the fact that more lenient divorces are not proper or true divorces, when she goes and when she remarries, she is effectively committing adultery. Now, notice something fascinating about this text. Although Jesus identifies the woman as the one committing adultery, who does he blame? He places the blame directly upon the man who unjustly divorces her by saying, you are the one making her, causing her to commit this adultery. The next thing he says is, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I am going to adopt a position, and I think I have reasons to, and and I think you'll see this clearly when we look at another text here in a minute, that what Jesus is talking about there is, Whoever marries a woman who has been unjustly divorced because in the eyes of Jesus Christ, who is God, who has created marriage, says that that woman is still in covenant with another man. If a woman has been unjustly, wrongly divorced, for you to marry her is seen as unlawful, sinful in the eyes of Christ. And in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus expounds on this teaching more and it would really be inadequate to deal with this subject without looking at what is said here. And a- actually, if you want, you can turn, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, because I want you to be able to, to see this with your own eyes. So in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 1, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, 
Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, once again, we, we've already looked at some of the historical background and the debates amongst the rabbis, which help us to understand what's behind the Pharisees' question here. And, and just as, as a side note, sometimes every time we see the Jews asking Jesus a, que- a question, we may innately think that they're accusing him or something like that, but, but in, in, in some cases, and I mean, maybe this is one, they're just simply asking a question, like trying to glean information. It, it, that was a, a practice amongst the Jewish teachers at the time. And so in verse 4, he answers. And this, this is what I just thought was so beautiful. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I just want to stop right there and point something out. When when the rabbis and the other teachers had their debates, we read from the the Mishnah, what do they say? They say things like, well, the house of Shammai says this, or the house of Hillel says this. Jesus doesn't quote some other rabbi. He says, have you not read? Have you not read? I love what he says to the Pharisees at another point. He says, have you not read what God spoke to you saying? And then he quotes the passage. That, that's, we need to model that in our own lives when it comes to debating theology or debating ethics and morality. What is our source? What is our authority uh, for the foundation behind our beliefs, it must be the Scriptures. That's what Jesus pointed us to. And by the way, Jesus looked at the Bible as the very voice of God speaking to you through text. He says, because normally you would think, well, have you not read what was written to you? Or, or have you not heard what was said to you? But Jesus says, have you not read what God spoke to you verbally? The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, says that all Scripture is theanustos, as God breathed. The very, very voice of God is found in the Word of God. And if that is not our belief of what the Bible is, that is a problem. And so, just... The, the, the other rabbis, they, they, they quote their authorities or their trusted teachers. Jesus quotes the Scripture. And, and so the debate is brought to Jesus. He goes, and, and there's even a tinge of rebuke in his response. Have you not read? As, as though it were just obvious to them. Like, like it was so clear. In, in the Gospel of John, Jesus will often say, often say things like, well, it is written in your law or in your scriptures. It's like there's almost mocking there. You people claim to be the true sons of Abraham, the true followers of Moses, and you don't even believe what Moses said. If you did believe what Moses said, you would believe me. And so and it's there for you all along. The answer is right here in the Word, but in your foolish pride and in your sophistry, you've been unable to see it. And so the first thing that he quotes is Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which says, quote, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what's amazing about the Word of God is for generations upon generations, it's like 
it would have been just so obvious that, that what, what it said there, male and female had created them. And, and now that is actually controversial in our own days. And I just think it's, it's a testament to the amazing power of God that he can inspire something in the scriptures that would have an application that we would not even really recognize for thousands and thousands of years. But, but it was there all along. And it's sort of like Jesus said, well, have you not read? And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, the Christian church needs to learn uh, her scriptures well enough to be able to examine what is going on in our culture in light of the Bible's teaching. So the, the, this is the first thing Jesus goes to, and it's, it's rooted in the creation accounts of Genesis chapter 1. And I thought it was funny when John and I were down in Atlanta, uh, Ken Ham, who you know from Answers in Genesis, he's got the, the ark down in Kentucky. One of the things he said is like, listen, so, so many of the, the problems of, of our day you want to know where the solution is? Genesis 1 through 11. In, in, the, in the creation account of God, there, there is just so much there. And so the first thing Jesus goes in the creation account, now you have to understand something. Some people have this false idea that the created, the material world is like a bad thing and that only spiritual type stuff is good. That, that's a dualistic concept that comes from Greek philosophy. It does not come from the scriptures. God created uh, the heavens and the earth, he created the seas, he, created, he creates all of this. And what does he say? He says it's good. It's, it's actually a good thing. God creates male and female, and that's a good thing. It is only until the fall when creation and mankind becomes corrupted. And, and so that, that is something that we need to reorient, reorient our minds around. So God creates and it's good. He creates man upright. And, and this is a good thing. There is no sin. There is no defilement. All is pure. And in the pure, undefiled, harmonious, perfect creation of God, you have two genders, male and female, and this category distinction is fundamental to the argument Jesus is going to bring together. See, the, the, the category distinction between men and women, that men and women are not the same, that is fundamental to Jesus' understanding of marriage. And I should just like to mention, God made male and he made female. That, that, that's a good thing. The fact that, that you are a man is a good thing. And the fact that you are a woman is a good thing. Your sexuality in that particular sense, that is a good thing. Key to rediscovering a biblical sexual and gender ethic in our day is going to be a recognition that men and women are not the same and that is good. There are things women can do that I can't do. I cannot get pregnant. I cannot bear a child. Women can do that. And that, that is, if, we, if that was not the case, none of us would be here, right? And so what is fascinating about the creation account, everything God creates, he creates and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. But then in chapter 2, verse 18, quote, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, a helper fit 
in the Hebrew is Eitzer Konegdo. Eitzer Konegdo. And, and you want to learn that, by the way, because this is beautiful, especially if you're married. And, and the absolutely beautiful thing that we see in the original language that is missing in the English is that one who is Eitzer Konegdo is one who is at the same time opposite to you, yet fulfills your needs. One who is opposite, one who is different from you, but in the very fact that they are different, that is how they are able to fulfill your needs. That, that is what is so beautiful about marriage from a biblical perspective because God has specifically designed men and women to be different so that when they are married and joined together, their differences actually complement, actually correspond to one another. Here again, we see that biblical sexual ethics completely contradict the narrative of our culture. The Bible recognizes something which is plain to all of us in nature itself, and that is the fact that men and women are different. Their biology is different. Their temperaments are different. They are not the same. But this does not mean that one is better or more valuable than the other. It means that they need each other right? You're, you're, the one who is Eitzer Konegdo, the fact that they are different from you is how they are able to fulfill your needs. Husbands, you need your wives to be Eitzer Konegdo, the one who helps you and fulfills your needs because of the fact she's different than you. Wives, you need your husbands to be Eitzer Konegdo, to be different from you in such a way that he and he alone can fulfill certain needs. Now, our culture hates this right? The, the, the church around the corner with the, the rainbow flag celebrating the Noahic covenant or something, they hate this. And yet Jesus says, this is where it is. This is where the power is. Have you not read? It's so wonderful. It's so beautiful. And the answer to all of your questions is here. If you would just humble yourselves and read it. And so our culture wants to tell us that men and women are the same, or even more outlandishly, that men can choose to become women and women can choose to become men. Furthermore, our culture also states that men can marry men and likewise women can marry women. Even the Pope of Rome amongst his various and sundry other blasphemies and heresies is making moves to see same-sex unions blessed. That is an official statement from the Vatican. But, but, but a person who joins a civil union with someone of their same gender can never be a circonegdo, right? They, they can never have that. That is so vital. That is so important to marriage. Men and men cannot do that. Marrying a mirror image of yourself is not beautiful. It is not a good thing. Therefore... We as Christians can never call those civil unions marriages for they do not meet the criteria of what makes marriage so special and it is all grounded in God's beautiful and good, undefiled, unsin-stained, perfect creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And it's funny that this sort of became a thing uh, in the news well, Christian news, I guess, lately, where you have one of our own Reformed Baptist, or at least Calvinistic Baptist preachers in Chagrin Falls, about 50 minutes from here, 
who said that it would be a good or a loving thing for a Christian to attend a, a, a trans wedding. But, but Christians cannot affirm that, right? Because Jesus says, you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world. That's why the world's going to hate you. That is, it's, it's so vital that we stand for these things in our days. And, and because of the fact that not only is it plain in Scripture, but it's plain to nature itself, the course of God's providence, I promise you, is going to, in the future generations, correct itself. And future generations are going to look back on us. And if we did not stand firm and solid on these things, they are going to wonder why we were so foolish, why we were such cowards and why we were so hateful. And so Jesus then, he quotes Genesis 2.24, which says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, we, we have already observed the connection between the distinctiveness of genders and how it is that that relates to marriage. And so in God's word, if you want to define what a marriage is, Marriage is when a man leaves his father and mother, he holds fast to his wife, the two of them become one flesh, one flesh, and that is how intimate, and that is how personal, and that is how sacred marriage is. Furthermore, this is something that God himself has specially ordained in creation. And as we are going to see, this is not something, something as beautiful, something as wonderful is that cannot be broken over such shallow things. So in verse 6, Jesus says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus then, he makes marriage a divine ordinance of God. Now, in Western countries, our, our, our marriages are recognized by the state, but never forget, never forget that ultimately marriage, when it is in fact marriage, is an act of God. Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, you may be wondering, well, why then did the Mosaic law include provisions for divorce? That is the objection Jesus will hear and which he will answer. So in verse 7, they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now notice the error of the Pharisees in verse 7. They say, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? You say, they, they treat Moses' words in Deuteronomy 24 like it's just something that has to happen, like it's a command. But if you remember, when we read the actual text, we spent some time talking about what it is that a case law is, and I told you that was important to remember. Well, if, if you knew that, well, then you would have been able to spot the defect in their argument if, if you had been there. This was not a command like God is requiring people to get divorced. Rather, this was a case law, a law which, because of the fact that we live in a fallen 
world was put in place so as to regulate a particular situation. And, and so listen to Jesus' response in verse 8. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, not commanded, but Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now, when Jesus refers to the beginning, again, as, as we've talked about, he's referring to God's creation, which we've already discussed. And so we see that the only reason divorce existed at all and why it is that God's holy word would even have to mention such a thing is because of the hardness of men's hearts. Now, having a, a hard heart, that is a concept that is seen a lot in Scripture, and it typically has to do with one's unwillingness to change, especially to come to terms with another. Pharaoh would not let Moses and the Israelites go because of his hardness of heart. Sinners will not turn to Jesus Christ until the Holy Spirit removes the hard heart of stone from the flesh and gives a heart of flesh. So in this case, what we see is a, is a man whose heart is hard and thus will not forgive or come to terms with his wife, but instead seeks to send her away. Jesus describes this divorce as a departure from God's created order. And so in verse 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And, and as I've said before, frivolous divorces are not recognized as genuine in the sight of God. And so the type of person Jesus rebukes here is one who would divorce his wife for some small and significant thing, well, and then he goes off and he marries some other woman. And I find it interesting that the Mishnah actually records Rabbi Akaba saying that, well, finding another woman prettier is the grounds for divorce. And, and I think that that's perhaps what Jesus is addressing there. And this kind of thing is seen as mightily sinful in the sight of God. So Jesus states that the only acceptable allowance for divorce to be, quote, sexual immorality, which is a wide sort of all-encompassing term that can refer to many sexual sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul describes the nature and depravity of what sexual sin is, and, and he draws off the language of Genesis, which you've already read, to say in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, quote, he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. You see, when you engage in sexual activity with someone who is not your spouse, you become one body body with that person in such a way that you have effectively dissolved the union between you and your spouse, and thus your spouse is given permission to divorce you if that is what they should choose. Someone who is willing to, uh, you know, the Bible says to not let the marriage bed be undefiled. And so someone who is willing to take what belongs specifically to their covenant partner the most intimate parts of their body and share them with another, you're, you're, you've, you've broken the covenant. And uh, a person is not uh, commanded, is not required to then stay with that person. Although, of course, forgiveness and reconciliation is, is, a, is a beautiful, wonderful thing. That person is not required to stay with the adulterous spouse. And as a matter of fact, 
in the Old Testament law, you know what they did with women who commit adultery? They stoned them. Now, one other possible allowance for divorce or separation is seen in the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is laying out the, the principles of Christian marriage, and I think we even touched on this in our last sermon. And so, in the beginning of verse 12, Paul describes a scenario where you have a Christian who is married to a non-Christian. Now, I believe that the Apostle Paul would admonish believers not to marry unbelievers, for he says in another text, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness. And while marriage is not explicit in that text, the Apostle makes a broad general principle that would apply to marriage. And, and so the scenario that you have in 1 Corinthians 7 is perhaps as the gospel is going out from Judea, it's going into the Gentile world, <clears throat> there, there's a situation where one person is converted and the other is not. And so in that unique, in that particular situation, well, what are you to do? Well, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 16, Paul says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother, brother, a brother in Christ, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And so, what you have is in this particular, in this unique situation where you are converted, but your spouse is not, if, if they can, still are consenting to live with you as your spouse, in keeping with Jesus' teaching, I believe, Paul says, well, you should not divorce them. Uh, saying that your unbelieving spouse is made holy by you. In other words, by means of your faith, they are made a genuine participant in the divine institution of marriage, which is why he brings up the example of children. Your children are not illegitimate children because One's, you're, you're a believer and, you're, and your wife is not. No, the, there, there's a genuine bond. There's a genuine union there. And it's the, the same thing with the spouse. But then hear this in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if, if the unbeliever abandons you and leaves... Paul says, let it be so. Let it, let it be so. God has called you to peace. And, and when Paul says the brother or sister is not enslaved, I take that to mean they are permitted actually to remarry if they have been abandoned by their spouse, particularly for their faith. But, but note it, and which, by the way, is why uh, divorce laws in our country used to actually have clauses that the abandonment and adultery were both uh, legal reasons to have a divorce. But notice that still the, the general admonishment is always towards remaining together. 
Verse 16, Paul writes, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And so, one of the things, as we looked at other texts and as we really thought about what marriage is and what divorce is, one of the things that we see and again, remember, Jesus Christ has chosen us out of the world. We're not to be of the world. John says, love not the world. As Jesus has called us out in the world, as we've been conformed to the image of God's Son uh, by means of the sanctification of God's Word, we recognize and we see how vastly different the view of Jesus in, is in regards to marriage and divorce than the views of the ancient rabbis and especially to our modern culture today. In 1969, California, which seems to be something of like a modern Sodom and Gomorrah, became the first U.S. state to permit, quote-unquote, no-fault divorce. By 1977, nine states had adopted no-fault divorce laws, and by late 83, all but two states had adopted a form of no-fault divorce. Prior to this, because of the fact that our country was so influenced by the Word of God, in order for you to divorce your wife, you actually had to demonstrate before a judge and a jury that your spouse had committed adultery, that they had abandoned you, some other thing, they, they had broken uh, their sacred covenantal vows. Now, Nowadays, uh, since all 50 states have a form of no-fault divorce, one party simply needs to state that, well, Your Honor, <clears throat> there are irreconcilable differences. Now, people will talk about being incompatible, right? Or, or, or we fell out of love, and it is without hesitation that I say our holy God, who is a consuming fire, hates this. The negative ramifications and consequences of these selfish and sinful actions can be easily recognized when you look at the children in these situations. The emotional trials that this puts them through is devastating, and one startling study notes that children with divorced parents divorce themselves at a higher rate than others, showing that when you allow sin to come into your lives and into your culture, it only multiplies. Now, what is the Christian message to a thing like this? Well, the Christian message is always first and foremost the proclamation of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and a call for people to obey His Word. Because, you see, God's Word provides for us the ultimate standard of truth and righteousness, and it is only by going back to what the good book says that we will ever see change or revival in our culture. Ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit who is going to change hearts and minds, and He does so by means of His Word, which is why we, we, we recognize we do not fight with worldly weapons but the, but the thing that God has given us is His Word. And I'm just so thankful. In Oklahoma, you have a guy who, who is made senator by the name of Dusty Devers. Dusty Devers is a Reformed Christian and, and, and an elder in a church. And he stands on Christian principles, including the abolition of abortion, which, uh, by the way, 
uh, the Speaker of the House and the top three candidates, Mike Johnson, who everyone lauds as such, such a great Christian man, the top three uh, presidential nominees for the Republican Party, none of these men stand for the abolition of abortion. As a matter of fact, in the state of Louisiana, uh, there was Christians who were trying to get bills of equal protection passed, which would effectively criminalize and abolish abortion. And Mike Johnson, this, this guy who presents himself as such a great Christian conservative, opposed it and shut the bill down. But guess what? I read my scriptures, and my Bible tells me that the gospel is going to be victorious. Jesus did not give us the Great Commission with the expectance that we would fail. And there is going to be a day when the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the way that we get to that glorious place is as the Holy Spirit ministers the Word of God through the church. Now, some practical issues need to be dealt with. For those who have been divorced... Uh, unjustifiably so, and remarried, well, what do you do? Right? Because where you're at right now is where you're at right now. And the thing that you have to do is to say to yourself, well, from where I am, I want to now lead, lead a life that is pleasing and honorable in God's sight. So what do you do? What do you do if you want to live a God-honoring life from here on out? Well, it is no question that Jesus identifies what you have done as a sinful, sexually immoral act. And you already know that because it was your recognition of your sin which told you that you needed a Savior, right? But we must never forget that 1 Corinthians chapter 6 identifies sexually immoral and adulterers amongst those whom God has saved and, and whom God has redeemed. And therefore, forgiveness is not outside of your reach. And as Paul advises couples not to divorce, I say that you should regard your current marriage as sanctified in the Lord and seek to please God in all that you do. Thus, let us all see what a high standard God uh, places upon marriage. Marriage is a preciously sacred thing in his sight. And let us pray that God would grant husbands and wives the grace to reconcile, the grace to forgive one another, remembering that forgiveness is a chief virtue of the Christian faith. And let those who are married thank the Lord God for their Eitzer Konegdo. You should get your wife a piece of jewelry which has the Hebrew phrase, Eitzer Konegdo, inscribed on it. Eitzer Konegdo, their helper who is able to fulfill their needs because of their differences. Remember, above all, that marriage is ultimately a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And therefore, let us actually close tonight's sermon by listening carefully to the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see she respects her husband. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we, we look at, at, at your word and we find in there things that convict us and at the same time things that encourage, encourage us. We see the beauty in your creation and your design for men and women and, and, and marriage and, and all of that. And, and it's seen as such a positive and wonderful thing, dear Lord. And so we just pray that as we approach those topics in our own lives, that we would do so in a way that is pleasing and honorable to you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.